Hi, my name is Julian Champlis. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Indigenous Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. You are listening to Reframing History. from a 1971 film called Teddy, produced by the UCLA Media Extension Center, is a great way to introduce my conversation with Rupika Rizm. Just as the film offered a different view of Black political life in the 1970s, my guest this week has done much to get scholars to think about the intersection of the humanities and the digital in modern academia. Professor Rizm is an associate professor of English and a faculty fellow for digital library initiatives at Salem State University. She is the author of New Digital Worlds, Postcolonial Digital Worlds in Theory, Practice, and Pedagogy, and co-editor of the Digital Black Atlantic with the Debates in Digital Humanities series. She's director of the Regional Comprehensive Digital Humanities Network and co-founder of Reanimate, an intersectional feminist publishing collective. Her scholarship has appeared in Digital Scholarship in Humanities, Digital Humanities Quarterly, The Basin Digital Humanities, Popular Communication, and South Asian Review, among many others. She's a frequent speaker on her research interests in race, globalism, technology, pedagogy, and public scholarship. She's also been a recipient of the Massachusetts Library Association's Civil Liberties Champion Award for her work promoting equity, Injustice in the Digital Cultural Record. It was a great honor for me to talk to her, especially as we continue to see debates around representation and institutional racism playing themselves out in the public square. We talked about the origin of her digital practice 
and how her vision of digital humanities animates the project she pursues and its connection to her persona as a public intellectual. I want to note that this episode starts a bit abruptly as we were talking a little bit about names and identities and stuff. So it starts a little weird, but don't worry, we get back on track pretty quickly. Let's give it a listen. Rupsi. Is it Rupsi that people call you? Yeah, says what everybody calls me. Rupsi. Okay. And and why do they call you Rupsi? This is just an aside. It's, I'm just curious. This is just what everybody has always called me my entire life. Okay. My Welsh godmother made it up. Okay. All right. That's really interesting, actually. I might keep that part in. Like, you know, the Welsh godmother made it up. All right. Well, um, <laughs> clearly this isn't that, this isn't like meet the press. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I think when people think about digital humanities, especially a, a particular strand of digital humanities, I think your name is one of the names that comes to the fore. And I also think a lot of the work that you do sort of foreshadows pathways that are important to the evolution of the digital humanities field. So I know for you, this is like everyone going to be a difficult question, but the first question I always ask people is, how do you define digital humanities? <laughs> well, so I now have my stock answer, right? And my stock answer is that it's anything that's at the intersection of humanities research and uh, technical inquiry. Uh, but to dig down a little bit into that, I think about it sort of primarily having two components. The first of which is using a range of digital tools to uh, interpret humanities data. And then on the flip side, using all of the lenses of inquiry that we have uh, for analysis from the humanities and applying that to digital cultures, digital platforms, how the internet works, how algorithms work, uh, to how surveillance is working. So I favor the more expansive definition because what I really think is most useful, interesting, and provocative about digital humanities for me is that it's not a closed method, that it's a method of possibility and a method of exploration. And so I like the idea of leaving space for kinds of scholarship that right now we can't even imagine. Right. And so one of the things I think that's really interesting about you as a figure in digital humanities, and I, and I, and I don't want to impose like definitional descriptors on you like I, I think one of the things that's very noticeable about you as a scholar is that you're a very public scholar like you're you're a public intellectual uh mm -hmm. in the sense that the work that you do often uh is transmitted through the kind of robust ecosystem of digital humanities communications that that people who are involved in the field participate in right so like these online forums mm -hmm. And also in terms of like some of the work that you do, like the projects that you actually do are deeply inflected by public debates and, and broader questions of policy and practice and, and history and power and things like that in the United States and, and sort of in the hemisphere, right? Like it's, it's, it's like a post-colonial mm. post project, I would say. So at, at some core, I think your work is 
often unified by a kind of concern about equity mm -hmm. and, and, and structure. And I wonder from your perspective, you know, how did that pathway emerge for you to intersect so strongly with the digital? Because I think you can make the argument that in terms of like your training and your background and so sort of like where you are, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be digital. Like, you did, you mm -hmm. so what is that digital gets you in terms of your work and your development as a scholar? How did that become, yes, this is how I'm going to do it? That's a really great question because often I struggle with feeling like I've so cemented my reputation as a scholar of digital humanities, which in many ways is really a very meta thing. It's really about how we do digital humanities research uh, more so than it is about actually doing research with digital methods in the areas in which I'm trained, which are African diaspora and post-colonial studies. Right. Um, so that's been a really interesting uh, and unexpected development for me. I mean, I really find that my greater interest is in how do we create equitable structures for scholarship, um, particularly for communities of color. And, um, and so that's why the, the meta research really captured my attention, but actually my inroad into digital humanities was very much a practical response to trying to solve a research problem. So uh, when I was writing my dissertation, uh, when I was a graduate student at Emory, I was doing research on black radicalism and, and transnationalism and trying to think through the intersections of different uh, radical activist uh, movements in, mm -hmm. in the U.S. and in, in, in post-colonial cultures as well. And I really found that I struggled to write about them. Like I struggled to write down on paper what seemed to me to feel like this very fluid, multi-directional uh, exchange of knowledge and exchange of practices and exchange of values. And so I was in the Huey Newton papers uh, at Stanford in the archives looking through the material in there and I came across the roles of subscribers to the Black Panther newspaper and you know I was just kind of looking through it and it was it was very interesting because it was really uh, showing this kind of global exchange of information uh, because we were finding subscriber addresses all over the world and you know, it was one of those moments where I thought wait a minute if I could map this and then potentially think about other ways of mapping different um, routes of communication between other groups, because there are also, you know, telegrams of the Viet Cong. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of exchange just beyond the subscriber roles uh, in, in the material in, in, in Newton's papers. You know, maybe this could be a way for me to just think through some of these connections in a way that I couldn't when trying to write them down in just textual form. And so it was that multimodal dimension, that possibility of spatial representation that allowed me to think through some of the ideas that I was working with that ultimately I would write in a textual dissertation. Uh, but it turned into a useful tool for me for thinking. And, you know, I've always been interested and inclined towards technology even since I was a child, and then also when I did my master's degree 
at Georgetown University, I was a fellow at their Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship, and we were doing a lot of work then with digital storytelling, with uh, this brand new thing called wikis. Uh, shows, shows my age and uh, we were really thinking about different you know, ways we could use uh, programs to engage students with texts like Dante's Inferno and so you know I had a little bit of a background from there in terms of thinking about the intersections of technology and the humanities and so it wasn't a surprise that I would sort of come back to that as a potential solution to a problem and what I found then, you know, while simultaneously working on my dissertation and just trying to solve this very practical problem, was that uh, I was really interested in the way that so much digital humanities scholarship tended to reproduce all of the canons of, of literature and history that we already have existing in analog form. Right. And so that, that became a subject in and of itself. And that's how I got into this meta uh, infrastructural level research because I was sort of interested in thinking through how uh, this area, which at that point was relatively new, digital humanities, was really reproducing a lot of the hierarchies of knowledge that already exist and while simultaneously having so much potential to challenge them. And so really what I ended up shifting into was focusing my research on how do we then actually use uh, the affordances of these digital platforms, of these digital tools to push back against that reinscription of canon through digital humanities scholarship. Wow. Okay. I, mean, I, I think that's really interesting because, of course, when we think about digital humanities now, I think one of the things that really dominates the public understanding around it is tools and what those tools do. And this is a, a kind of long-standing tension within the field. And I think one of the things also interesting about hearing your pathway into the work is it wasn't necessarily about tools, it was about the implication of what, what not kind of knowledge is being created. Mm -hmm. That's really, really sort of animated your, your involvement with these things. And so, you know, that kind of leads me to, to my next question. When, when people talk about digital humanities, they often are mired in, in this sort of idea around it as unlike the other humanities, which don't have mm -hmm. any value. Because we put digital on top of it, it has a kind of tangible element, right? People understand like, oh, computers do things. And so therefore, these humanities scholars are doing something because they are doing things digital. And it obscures a, a, a whole level of, I, I feel like it often obscures a whole level of thought, of debate, of like critical sort of conversations that are trapped at some level in the kind of materiality that we assign digital things. And one mm -hmm. of the things that's really interesting about you is that like a lot of your work is about structure, right? It's about thinking about how the world knows something. It's about epistemology, mm -hmm. right? And so for mm -hmm. you, and when you think about your, your pathway as a scholar, where do you see your work going in terms of like this bigger the question of digital humanity? Like how do you see yourself fitting into this ongoing scholarly evolution? Because I do think it's evolving. Like I don't, I don't ever mm -hmm. want to say that like, you know, it, anything is settled. 
I just think that there's always a question. There's some, always some dominant narratives and there's always some of these narratives who are like going under the radar and be very interesting, but struggle to get sort of like public view. So how do you mm-hmm. see that whole process playing out? So I mentioned earlier that something that really drives me is this question of how can we continue to build and sustain the capacity of scholars in areas like African diaspora, Latinx, indigenous, post-colonial critical ethnic studies to undertake digital scholarship if they so wish. Um, in many ways, it feels like uh, there's there are some barriers to entry, particularly around the technical dimensions, uh, particularly mm-hmm. if you don't have experience with coding, for example. Although there are so many out-of-the-box tools that actually obviate the need to even learn to code. Uh, but I'm found myself kind of having a, a shift in thinking around uh, this question of what kind of level of, of technological um, competency that, that scholars of color need uh, to be able to effectively do the work to intervene in what I call in my book, New Digital World, the digital cultural record, to ensure that that record isn't just a record of Anglophone um, culture. Um, and Anglophone white culture. And uh, what I've been coming around to is actually this uh, thinking about what are the ways that we can build up the capacities of our communities to do more technical research. And I came to this in a very strange way, which is that last summer, uh, you may have seen the project Torn Apart Separados, which um, a number of us undertook in response to the immigrant detention family separation policy. And so it's a series of data visualizations, uh, mostly uh, map-based, in which we did some analysis of the locations of immigrant detention centers, the location of shelters that are being used to detain children, and we did some uh, we did some data visualization around uh, the finances uh, and the government contracts that ICE gives out to support the immense uh, infrastructure of immigrant detention. And what happened was when we did the first part, which was just about uh, where are the detention centers, everything was coded by one person on our team, Mosir de Saperera, and he just did everything. The rest of us did, did research. We did sort of the thinking. We were applying our backgrounds in postcolonial and border and Latinx studies uh, to how we were designing the project. But the actual coding was done by Mosir, who's now at Columbia the data librarian. And what then happened with the second volume was I ended up scraping all the government contracts for five years of uh, of ICE money. And then we had a larger data set. And we spent some time prototyping how we want to visualize this data set. And we were doing so under the understanding that we had another person who was willing to code on that team. And it so happened that by the time we finished prototyping the visualizations, the coder said, you know what, I have other priorities and need to attend to those and can't work with you. I mean, totally understandable graduate student, also involved in unionization at their university. So we totally understood. But then we came down to this problem, which was we had imagined a project that needed to be done relatively quickly, but that was so large that we couldn't just rely on the work of a single coder. And so I had to learn how to code in JavaScript. And I had to learn how to do 
D3 data visualization. And I actually had not really thought I could. And it was this moment where when the rubber hit the road, where we needed the labor, I discovered that if it wasn't that I couldn't do it, it was that I just didn't ever had a compelling enough reason to sit down and learn how to do it. And I think that in some ways, you know, we've had these debates in digital humanities for the last decade over do you have to code, who has to code or not. And I've always fallen along the, the side of the argument that Miriam Posner uh, made in, I think, about 2010 when she said, you know, think twice before you exhort everyone to learn how to code, that there are people who, for gendered and racialized reasons, have been de-incentivized or socialized to think they can't learn to code. I had just kind of patted myself on the back for nearly 10 years saying, okay, see, I can't code because it's a gender <laughs> thing. <laughs> now, it turns out that I had just been using that as an excuse to just not learn how to code because I thought, well, I don't have to. And, you know, I was able to functionally do the projects I needed to do with the out-of-the-box tools that are available uh, to me. But then I found that once I had a better understanding of the foundations of computation and once I understood a little bit about how this code worked and what was happening, it actually opened up so many more possibilities for the research that I could do. So what I'm doing right now is actually um, that dissertation I mentioned mm -hmm. on black radicalism focused a lot about on Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois, and reframing him uh, at, and the global dimensions of his career, because a lot of the biographies sort of say, you know, his global turn comes later in his life. And re really, really, if you look at this his work, it doesn't. I mean, it's yeah. there from the beginning. Right. So right. I started envisioning a series of data visualizations that would actually make the case uh, for this kind of long-term global commitment in his career. And that's one of the projects that I'm working on right now. And it was something that I couldn't have even imagined, you know, from a research project design perspective without having even just a very, very basic understanding of the foundations of computation. And so, I mean, that's something I'm really interested in, in now going forward is thinking up ways of designing collaborative projects that can bring people in who, like me, thought that they couldn't do it and help them gain some of the, the, the skills to, to actually do it. And then who knows what's possible for our research? <laughs> you, you, you sound like a convert. Um, there's, there's I know. Several it's things. There's several things you said there, and I want, I want to go back to them. Like, one, you mentioned that you had previously been able to do everything you needed to do with these things that are out of the box. And I, I find that really interesting because I, I also don't code, and I'm probably the same way. It's like, well, no, I, at no point has my life depended on me being able to code. If it did, I would code. Like, I, I know that. Like, if, if, if anything, like, really was, like, deterministic, then I would be like, oh, God, if I don't do this, I die. I die. So I, I would do it, right? I mean, that's what tenure is built on. <laughs> threat. It's a threat. It's built on threat. It's not built on, like, love. I mean, I, mean, I, know, I know people want to believe it is, but, like, let's be honest here. It's built on threat. <laughs> um, so, and, and part of the, I think, interesting thing about the dichotomy that developed, as you alluded to, is like, well, you know, if you don't do, if you don't make something, then you didn't do DH was at some level, I personally have thought a fairly elite statement that did allude to a kind of differential and resources that were available to people. Mm -hmm. So that 
the vast majority of projects that people know. And when I say people, I mean a general educated public mm-hmm. that might be on, on online, not academics per se, but mm-hmm. they may be academic, but you know, they, they, they read Slate, right? Like Slate's my, you know, if you think about Slate, Slate's a publication that a lot of people read and they have this whole thing yeah. around DEH, right? And for that public, they see certain digital projects and like that is DEH to them. And it's, right. For lack of a, this is a broad generalization, but for the most part, that's coming from a very small set of actors who've come in from very mm-hmm. heavily resourced place. And then there's a whole set of other people, myself included, who are drawn to digital things because of its ability to democratize information, its ability to like create like relationships, ability to actually at some level recover community narrative, recover mm-hmm. um, stories that should be part of the canon, but can't be because of the way the canon was built. And so by creating these sort of digital projects, you can sort of create these connections, right? You, you, it's almost like an insurgent mm-hmm. thing. And I, and I hear in your, in your answer, like a real, I think, evolution, um, not just simply in your thought, but also evolution perhaps in the field in the sense that this empowering of the individual to create work and how that will change questions is, is I think something that we do see with, uh, quite frankly, younger scholars. You're way younger than me. And I think of you as like, well, you are. I mean, like I'm an old man and, and, and you're, you're, young, you're a younger, younger person. I look younger than I am. <laughs> yeah, that's always true. With the, yeah, yeah. Uh, I look younger than I am too. Uh, and so this, requirement to do more i think of as a a really interesting point and like i and i hear in your answer something that perks up you know that that touches on a a really complicated transformation that's taking place because the desire the requirement to produce something that will generate new new knowledge has always been you know a part of academia but when you mm-hmm. start add the digital to it, so like what you just described, like what kind of questions can I, what, what kind of things can I do now that I know the coding? Do you see that as, as perhaps another complicated burden for people? Especially because I think some of this is about training in mm-hmm. academia. What, what kind of consistency do we have around training in digital humanity? My personal response is like, there is no consistency. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly, I feel like, <laughs> like there's not a lot of consistency here. We all talk about it, but how you arrive at actually doing it is like totally different. So I want to, I want to ask you about that. I want, I want to get you to think, what do you see as the implications of this transformation? Let me just back up a second and say that I consider if you, for example, make a digital exhibit, you know, using Omeka or use WordPress, that's as much making something as coding is. And I don't want to privilege or overprivilege coding as a particular form of knowledge and insight um, that you can't get from from working uh, in a in on a platform like Omeka. I think absolutely Omeka too raises questions that complicate how we think about humanities research and just coding is just another dimension with another raising another set of questions okay um 
Okay. Because partially because of this is that, you know, the, the overprivileging, the elitism around coding that was really uh, part of the discourse of digital humanities, particularly about a decade ago, was disenfranchising to people like me who did not have the resources, uh, the time, the job to be able to learn how to do this. And I very much was... Uh, excited about the fact that there were platforms like Oveka and WordPress and Gephi uh, that allowed me to do this kind of work with and it lowered that barrier to entry. And so I, I think it's a both and okay. in the sense that I believe we should continue um, building up people's capacities to use the out-of-the-box tools and to think about how those change the questions uh, of our research. But then I think there's also this added dimension that if it's if it's useful to your research, if it allows you to work with a data set that you wouldn't really be able to work with as effectively without it, mm -hmm. then it's worth taking the time to learn. But I think this does get back to this question of like how we are training graduate students. And you know, I think this is a particularly interesting question in light of, uh, there's an article in the Chronicle the last couple of days around Columbia University's English department uh, not placing any students in tenure track jobs and then um, bringing in a cohort of 19 students for their new class and then suggesting they need summer internships in art galleries and that's gonna solve everything. Um, <laughs> and museums, right? Because there are so many art gallery and museum jobs out there just waiting to take Columbia PhDs in English, but you know, this question around in this environment where there are so many streams on the humanities in particular, higher ed more generally. I mean, we were both at public institutions. We know this. Our institutions uh, battle with this financial question, the defunding from state legislatures as well. Right. You know, I think we're, what I really think we need to be doing is thinking about how our graduate programs are preparing students for the existence of a humanities at a moment in time when it's deinstitutionalized and we can't count on the existence of PhD programs in the humanities. I went and gave a talk last spring at a university I will not name, in which I, uh, I was sort of making this point and I was saying, you know, we really need to be thinking about how we're training graduate students and for what purpose and they can learn to code and they can learn to use these digital humanities out of the box tools even more easily. And this will open up new questions, this will open up new audiences uh, for mm. their research. This will open up even new possibilities uh, for, their, for their careers if uh, accompanied by the right kind of professional development. Right, and right, right. the professor who invited me said, well, if my graduate student told me she wanted to take two weeks and work on torn apart separados, I would have said, uh, you know, what a waste of time. You should be writing your dissertation. And I said to that professor, you are preparing your students for a future that is fictional. And it is a future where the humanities continues uh, to thrive in a way that it isn't presently. And instead, we need to be thinking about preparing people to sustain the humanities, to sustain the digital cultural record beyond that. And this is not just at the graduate student level. It's also at the undergraduate level. Because the right. vital survival of the, of the humanities right now can't hinge on funding of, from universities because it's not working for us. So right. I like this as like a backup plan for the humanities too. <laughs> 
So this is this is this is like the 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 the, the black box generational. <laughs> We're gonna have to train a whole set of people who are gonna be like, at some level in their core, um, able to preserve the record through this dark ages, and then when things turn <laughs> around, they'll be like, okay, it's here. It's in structured data form. We can slot it into the new thing that you're gonna fund. And right? you know, at some level, you're right because I actually think this is one of the things that is really important um, when you start thinking about institutions at a lower level, more localized institutions that are very interested in documenting community and often reach out to scholars or or develop relationships with scholars to help them do that work, right? Like that they're, mm-hmm. I, I recently came from the Association for African American uh, Museums meeting and like mm-hmm. this is something that was very, very central, you know, you have administrators for super small organizations sometimes with a staff of like four, four to seven people who are serving a small community, but they're a cultural institution and they program and they're bringing people in and they're like, what can we do to create digital work? How can we sustain it? Like what are, what are some of the practices? Cause we're there, we're doing that work. And like, that's a legitimate point. Like we, we, we need to have some conversations with those people and help them, help them develop their 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 infrastructure and help them sustain their themselves and so when you think about your future work i mean i know you're working on a book uh, as you mentioned that sort of built on on your dissertation work and is that where is that the pathway that you're going are, are are you going to be looking at these things uh in that more traditional but also alternative mode moving forward where you're going to develop these things that are traditional academic projects, but also be developing things that may be outside that, that sort of live in a public place and, and rely on a kind of public infrastructure. How do you see your, your work developing as you sort of like suss out this sort of future where the humanities isn't in the same mode as it used to be? And I, and I think we all can agree that you made a good point there. Um, so, so what does your work forward look like in terms of like the structure the object that you're creating, what's their relationship? I mean, one of the questions that, or issues that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and is definitely going to be a chapter in the new book that I'm writing, is this question around the, uh, around expertise and the way that the university has tried to consolidate itself as the locus of expertise. Whereas if you go to your colleagues in the museum, world. They have expertise too. If we go into communities where people just are doing whatever they're doing, they have expertise too. And there's a way that the university tends to try and prove its value by claiming that they are the sole inheritors of of knowledge and the sole stewards of knowledge. And so what I'm really interested in in the work that I'm doing, yes, some of it is traditional, right? I'm writing another monograph. Uh, I'm doing this uh, Du Bois data visualization project that's based on my previous dissertation book because I never wrote a book for my dissertation. Uh, instead, I'm turning it into a data project. Uh, and that's about you know communicating mostly with other with other researchers, not so much with with the general public. But then I also have a number of of projects that I've been working on for some time that are also about how do we build up connections uh, across the lines between university and community? Um, How do we uh, think about 
public humanities and digital public humanities as being a way of recognizing and valuing expertise that resides outside of the academy and outside of the reward structures of the academy. So, for example, I've been running a high school digital humanities program in partnership with a local high school in Salem where we take students at the school or predominantly um, Latinx students and uh, engage them with the history of Salem and the history of immigration in Salem and sort of help them articulate their place within the rich history of immigration in the city uh, in Massachusetts. And um, in the meantime, you know, they learn about the history of Salem. They learn how to do archival research. They learn about writing for multiple audiences and publics. And, you know, it's really been interesting. I mean, on a cynical level, it turned into a really awesome recruiting tool at the beginning <laughs> of the semester. None of those students were coming to Salem State. And by the end of the semester, five of them were coming to Salem State. And I was working in orientation and I ran into them and they were so excited to already have a connection to the university because we were bringing them into the university and, um, you know, bringing them into, into the archives and working with them. And, and it was, you know, but, but really what was most uh, meaningful about doing that was the students uh, who, you know, these were not AP students, these were not honor students. We intentionally partnered with a teacher who wanted to give an opportunity to the kinds of students who don't always get these kind of pre-college, early college special opportunities. You know, we wanted actually the kind of students who do come to our regional public university. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so having them in this position where they became the experts uh, and then they also used their own knowledge and their own experiences and to put that into conversation with the research they had done, that was really um, exciting. And that's sort of, I think, these kinds of, of, of interventions that need to also simultaneously uh, be taking place. Uh, another that I'm working on, uh, Carol Stabile at the University of Oregon and I are running, um, created a, a, a publishing collective to find writing by women and women of color in media industries and to find the material in their archives and get the rights and publish them, publish them as ebooks so that people teach them. Uh, part of this is around trying to intervene in the need to uh, diversify curriculum, particularly in, in making this material uh, openly available for high school teachers as well. And so that's another sort of way in which this kind of public focus comes into the work. And now the, the downside of this is that the traditional reward structures of the university don't <laughs> really recognize this work, right? right yeah. They recognize the book. Right. That's about right. it. So there is that side. And I mean, I think that some of us, you know, doing this kind of work are trying to also think through theoretically um, how do we make the claim for the value of this work to get it recognized within reward structures as well? So, I mean, I think, you know, both of those projects, working with the community, of course, is a really important part of what institutions say they want. <laughs> but uh, it's often uh, sequestered under that general service um, yeah. category in tenure and promotion. And it, you know, for the for the listener who doesn't know, um, you know, general academic rewards are divided between uh, research, teaching, and service. And depending on the institution that you're at, you know, those percentages are very different, right? They they tend to be forty percent, 
research, 40% teaching, and 20% service is how it's written on the page. But once you're in the system, you know that like that research part is more like 80%. (laughs) (laughs) And that teaching part is like 15. (laughs) And the service thing is like, it actually doesn't offer anything unless they're looking for something to screw you over. Um, Yes. I mean, because we don't even have percentages. Right, yeah, right. So, Which, like, you could be optimistic and look at that and say, ooh, you can decide where you choose to focus your research, but no, really, you have to divine, like, where, right, like, yeah. this provost who's here this minute and that dean who's there, like, five minutes ago thinks you should be doing. Right, how do they feel about what you just did? Um, which puts a lot of pressure on people of color and women because they're often saddled with, a lot of invisible service, right? There's a huge literature mm-hmm. about invisible service. Yeah. And, and, and I think in, in, in digital work, there's also a tremendous amount of invisible labor, right? Yeah. It's always, there's always labor that is involved in anything that's digital and it's either painfully individualistic <laughs> labor, like you did it all yourself and that was horrible, or it's painfully group <laughs> labor, you all did it, working together and that was also horrible like like you didn't get credit for right um and so it's really interesting to hear uh you talk about those projects because they, it does point to these broader broader questions and as, as as you all know there's a lot of a lot of discussion about what are the the rules and regulations around how we build these projects to recognize labor that we're not going to, to uh-huh. exploit students and I, and I think about this a lot because a lot of work I, I did was with undergraduates and they walked into a classroom and like, we're going to do this thing that's digital. We're not going to write a paper. And they weren't necessarily happy about that, right? They were trying right. to expect paper and, you know, they're making this digital thing. And it turned out okay, I guess, but who knows? But it, it is a question. And I think about that at a public institution even more because I'm often saying, yeah, we're not going to, do a paper we're going to do a digital thing we're going to put it in something and it's going to be a repository and hopefully this is going to help with public understanding about x and that's a goal for this project right like you're that's a goal for us and so it's not settled and and so i i wish you luck with all those things because i think all of them sound really cool Uh, i always always think it's really interesting to hear practitioners talk about their work and talk about their goals around the work. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk through some of these things. I, I know that a lot of people um, know you from online and I think, you know, you can sort of Google your name and, and get a sense of hearing you talk about the importance of digital, um, the community that's cultivated digitally, how important it's been to you in terms of like defining your work. But I, I you know, I think it's real it's great. I have opportunity to have you, talk through some of the the intricacies for this for you as an individual so i really appreciate you taking the time to do that thank you for having me thank you for listening to reframing history this is an anchor podcast that you can subscribe to on itunes stitcher or wherever you find your podcast please join us again for our next episode